In just a few minutes, uh, we will be uh, looking or reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, and we'll look at just one verse this morning. That will be verse 18, if you would like to go ahead and find your way there. Um, the notes are in the Bible app, if you're using that uh, and you want to follow along. They are also on our website, if you happen to be on our website right now, the notes are in there, and I will make sure that I clearly say the points uh, twice, okay? So if, you, if you're wanting to take notes and that sort of thing, um, that way uh, you can do so. Um, my goal is that uh, we're going to be spending the next several weeks looking at this topic of the church, and we will uh, be looking at various passages of scripture to do so. Uh, we'll spend a total of 17 weeks um, looking at this topic, and my desire is that when it's all said and done, and, and when we finish looking at what is the church, uh, this you know this whole idea of, of what's a church supposed to do, and these kinds of things, that we'll have a firm grasp of what the scripture clearly teaches us when it comes to the church. I believe it's essential as we start this series to ask this question, what is the church? In other words, uh, we all really need to be on the same page regarding the church as we move through this series. The answer to the question, what is the church, is really not as simple as people might think it is. In fact, if we were to go out and survey people here in our town and we asked them this question, hey, what is the church? We would hear all kinds of different answers. If people are familiar with the church building, they would probably describe uh, uh, to you where their building is located because to them, that is the church. In fact, that is sometimes how we um, use the word, right? We, we, we talk about it as the building. We might say, I got a First Baptist Church. And um, immediately following that, you would say, uh, it is that uh, the brick building across from KFC, right? Because that's, that's how most people describe First Baptist Church. And, and, or it's between AutoZone and CVS. Uh, but, but we should at least know that the church is not really a building. Instead, it's the people who meet in the building. There used to be this um, group when I was a youngster back in the day uh, called Acapella Vocal Band, and they used to sing, you can't go to church, as some people say. It's a common terminology we use every day. You can go to a chapel, you can sit in a pew, but you can't go to church because the church is you. The building can look like a church. It can even have a steeple. It can have a cross on it. Or maybe it's a different kind of building that's been remodeled to have an auditorium in it and classrooms to be a church. Uh, in some countries, churches meet in houses just as they likely did in the early church days. This is just to say the building is not the church. The people are the church. And as I was preparing this message and, and thinking through this whole idea of what is the church, I wrote this sentence out. The church is not something that we attend, but it's who we are. It's not something we attend, but it's who we are. However, even if everyone agrees that the church is the people and the church is not the building, we still need to have some clarification on what the church really is 
or at the very least, what the church is supposed to be. Certainly, some people believe the church is a place where you can go and meet some other hopefully hopefully nice people. Generally speaking, the church uh, typically is a crowd that is a tad bit nicer than, than the everyday crowd. At least we, we hope that's the case. And so the church really does meet a social need, or at least the church should meet a social need. Some people think that the church is a place where you go when, when you need help from God. You go to church, get your life back together. So God is kind of like this gene. So he's going to help you get your life back on track if you, if you go to church. Or he's going to help you improve your business. Or he's going to bless your family if you go to church. And he's just going to make your life all that much better if you go to church. Some men go to church um, at Maybe on Valentine's Day, I don't know, but uh, some men go to church to make their wife happy. As long as their friends are not doing something more substantial, then he'll go to church to make his wife happy. As long as, as uh, uh, his friends are, are uh, not watching the big game or something like that, because he does it to please his wife. For those who claim to be born-again believers... The number one reason, the dominant reason for going to church in America is to worship God and get spiritually nourished. Worship God and to get spiritually nourished. It's like going to the movies, but with a spiritual focus. When you go to the movie, you go and you sit and you watch the movie for your enjoyment. Perhaps you see your friends in the lobby before or after the movie. Stop and chat with them for a few minutes. But that is about the extent of your involvement with them while you're at the movie. Now that's what we call a religious consumer. The church provides the good that the people consume. And so what happens is that people start to attend church based on the goods that they want to consume. I want to consume this kind of goods, so I'm going to this church. What best meets my needs or what best meets the needs of my family, that's why I'm going to go to this particular church. And you know what happens is churches begin to, be, uh, begin to compete with one another. So who can have the best show? Who can deliver the best goods? And the churches cater to the consumer mindset. And every Sunday there's going to be a show after show to attract as many people as they can attract to attend their show so offerings will increase and they, they can hire more staff and they can be more attractive to their potential customers. And so pastors and their, and their staff we meet week after week and they pour over ministry magazines and blog posts and websites and, and, and all this stuff to get more and more ideas so they can get more and more people to be attracted to the show that they put on. Why? Because the church with the most people wins. And so it's, it's a show for some. And the result of that is this, these huge mega churches with parking lot attendants, not that there's anything wrong with parking lot greeters, that have coffee bars at rival Starbucks, professional worship teams that perform like a concert, short sermons, which we know you don't get here, but short sermons that always focus on felt needs of the customers, and that during the midweek, they have exercise programs and free babysitting and classes on 
all kinds of issues for the people that are void of the gospel because we can't offend our customers. Otherwise, they might not come back and consume our product. I like what Paul Washer used to say. It's like six flags over Jesus. And even in all this, people would still rather sit at home in their pajamas, sipping on their gourmet coffee, and catch their favorite preacher online. And if you're watching online, please don't tune me out, because I said that. But their thought is, is a straightforward thought, and one that many people have, one which I think this pandemic that we're in has exposed, and that is this. Why do I need the church? Why do I need it? Most people believe the church is just out of touch and where they're at. Many will say the church is too judgmental. It's filled with people that, that uh, are uncomfortable with tattoos and body piercings and the things that I do, so I'm not going to church. And they would rather stay home and surf the web and find some pastor that they like or talk with their friends about spiritual issues that concern them because they don't find anything in the church. You see, many people see no point in being committed to the local church. So in this series, one of my goals is to change our understanding of what the church is. To take us from the prevalent consumer mindset to a biblical mindset of the church so that we will fully understand the call to commit ourselves to the local church even though it's imperfect because we all know that our church isn't perfect, but even though it's imperfect that we still would seek to be the church that the Bible prescribes, not describes, prescribes. And so today, in today's message, my main point is this. If anyone is going to be committed to the local church, we must define what we are committing to. If anyone is going to be committed to the local church, then we have to define what we're committing to. So with that said, I would ask that if you're willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word as we read from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, just one verse this morning from God's word. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Jesus speaking says this, And I tell you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. We will look at several passages this morning. But Lord, I pray that when we leave this place, that we have a better understanding of what the church truly is and that lord you will impress upon our hearts that we need to be committed to the local church committed to the body of christ speak for your saints are listening speak to our hearts lord i pray this in jesus name amen you may be seated so what i'd like to do today is first look at the church defined the church defined and uh, so we're going to define the local church and we're going to define what's known as the universal church 
And, uh, we're, and then we're going to take and look at some biblical descriptions of the church. So the church defined. Before looking at these two definitions, I want to let you know that, that I came up with these definitions through reading and mashing together some different definitions uh, that I could find. And, and I want to first define what we're talking about when we say the local church and then what we're talking about when we say the universal church. So first, I want us to look at the local church. What is the definition of a local church? And this is the, this is the definition I'm working with, okay? So the local church is a gathering of those people who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior and are committed to regularly meeting together for worship, for teaching, for fellowship, for prayer and who are making every effort to make disciples that make disciples and you're like wow that's a long technical definition it is it's a complex definition there there are simpler definitions out there but i feel that they either don't have enough detail to them or they miss the mark in, in other ways wayne gruden gives this definition the church is the community of all true believers for all time that's that's a simple definition and it recognizes that greek word ekklesia which literally is translated assembly but often it's translated church it's used of god's people in both the old and new testament but it does not recognize the distinct nature of the church that began on the day of pentecost where we have everyone under the headship of jesus christ and being baptized by the holy spirit into one body of Christ. So indeed, God has always had this community of true believers. Still, I believe that we should understand that there's a distinction between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament church, which is referred to as the body of Christ, which we're going to look at later. I like what James Boyce says on this. This is what he says. The church has characteristics that cannot rightly be applied to the Old Testament assembly and which therefore set it off as something new. The church is found on the Lord Jesus Christ, is called into being, uh, into being by the Holy Spirit, and is to contain the people of all races who thereby become one new people in the sight of God. Max Stiles from Nine Marks also writes this, the church is the God-ordained local assembly of believers who have committed themselves to each other. They gather regularly. They teach the word. They celebrate communion and baptism. They discipline their members. They establish a biblical structure of leadership. They pray and give together. Certainly the church may do more, but it's not less than this. So this is why in the definition I propose that the local church is first a gathering of those people who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This means that the church consists of those who actually meet together because they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is fundamental for the church. In other words, each member of the local church believes the gospel and is actually saved. You see, some of the problem uh, today is there's many people that are members of the church that don't know Christ. They just don't. And, and so then when they step out of line, the church doesn't know what to do because they're acting like they're lost because they are lost. 
But the church has to be made up of believers that believe in the gospel. That, in other words, each member believes the gospel and that they are a sinner who deserves God's righteous judgment. And God sent His eternal Son, Jesus Christ, who is God in the human flesh, to pay the penalty that I could not pay, but the penalty that I deserve. And God promises that all who believe that Jesus died for their sins and was raised from the dead will receive the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life as a free gift. Genuine saving faith both includes turning from my sins and growing in obedience to Christ. The belief in the gospel is at the core of all true local churches. Now, I also added that those who have believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior are committed to regular meeting for worship, teaching, fellowship, and prayer. That's straight from Acts 2.42, where we have a report of the early church. What's it say? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Paul gives some instructions to the church when he writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The Bible clearly spells out for us the church's essential activities that we gather together on the Lord's Day to do some very specific things, to, to worship, to teach, to fellowship, and to pray. Finally, the last part of my definition is I, uh, that I have is that the church is making every effort to make disciples that make disciples. That's the great commission the Lord gave us himself when he said in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It's not a suggestion. It's not called the great suggestion, but the great commandment. It wasn't just for the apostles. It wasn't just for foreign missionaries. Every Christian is to be involved in the process of making disciples, who in turn will also make disciples, whether it is locally or whether it's globally. It does not matter. It's our duty. This means that we, we share the gospel with those that are outside of Christ and that we help other believers grow in Christ. Now, before moving on, I believe it's important to note that the Bible never uses the word church to refer to the building where, God, where God's people met. But almost all of the time, to the cities where they met. So it doesn't talk about like, oh, the church is this building. It talks about the church is in the sense of the city. So when the Bible talks about the church in Jerusalem, the church at Philippi, the church in Corinth, the church in Rome, the church in Ephesus, it's almost certain that there were too many believers in these cities to gather in one location on Sunday morning. And so they would meet in various houses throughout the city. Most likely each house had at least one pastor or elder who was responsible for shepherding and for oversight and the teaching of that flock. But the church in that city was still, still viewed as one local church Governed by a plurality 
of elders. Watchman Nee said this, a local church is a church which comprises all the children of God in a given locality. And I really don't know how this could be a reality in most places today as there are so many Protestant denominations in every single city. The overall point is this, the local church is a gathering of believers in Jesus Christ as Lord, who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, who are committed to one another to help fulfill his saving purposes. Now let's move on to the universal church before looking at some biblical descriptions. The universal church. In the book of Hebrews, there's a description of God's people at Mount Sinai. And then the author makes a contrast when he writes in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and feastal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now I've heard some pretty wacky sermons over that passage of scripture, but the point that the author is diving, uh, driving home and diving into is that these Jewish believers in Christ He's, he's speaking to them, and he's saying that Christ, is, uh, that the church is superior over and against the old covenant. And the reason he's doing that is because they were being tempted to return to Judaism. Well, I preached in the book of Hebrews. You can go on our website and, and find it. Um, but, but that's his whole point, that they, they, they were going to return to Judaism. And he's saying, hey, the the church is superior to that. We're all part of this great company of people everywhere, all around the world, who have believed in Jesus Christ in his shed blood is a part of the universal church. Well, in one sense, that does include Old Testament believers as they look forward to Christ. In another sense, there's this contrast between them and us in that we are actually members of the worldwide body of Christ, the church. Perhaps you've had the privilege of of meeting someone from another country whose culture is radically different than your culture. You may or may not know this, but not everybody lives like we do here in America, right? Their culture, cultures are completely different. But there are believers in other cultures. And maybe they can, all, they can only speak broken English. But when you discover that they are a believer in Christ, what happens? There's an instant bond in fellowship with them. How is it that two people who are completely at opposite ends of the spectrum culturally and whose church meetings are probably very, very different can instantly have a bond. Because they're both members of the universal body of Christ. This to me is absolutely amazing. I've served on mission trips to France to El Salvador, and to Haiti. And it's always the same thing. When you meet other believers, there's an instant bond. Instantly. Even though there's vast, vast cultural differences. 
None of that seems to matter. You don't sit there and argue about the cultural difference. Well, you know, this is the way we do it in America, so let me tell you how you're going to do it over here in Haiti. It doesn't matter. You're both believers. You have an instant bond. Universal church. All believers everywhere. Part of the universal church. So secondly, what I want to do for the rest of my time is look at some biblical descriptions of the church to help us understand how the Bible describes the church and to help us understand what the church is a little bit better. I want to take a few minutes to further help us understand that. So we'll, so we'll uh, do it by looking at some of these descriptions. Naturally, we can't cover every single description in the Bible of the church. So I limited it to seven descriptions. And even with these seven descriptions, obviously I, I can't like expound on these things deeply. So I'll have to comment briefly. First, the body of Christ. The body of Christ. That's the first biblical description. The body of Christ. That's probably the most familiar description for most people because Paul uses it rather extensively, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because he's making the point that believers are members of the body of Christ. And this is what he says in verse 13. For in one spirit, we are all baptized in one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In chapter 12, Paul does not mention that Christ is the uh, head of the body because his emphasis, uh, he's given this emphasis both on unity and diversity in the church. And so just like in our human body, right, we have many members, but each has its own function. It's the same in the body of Christ. Each member has a spiritual gift. Each person, each member of the body of Christ has a spiritual gift that can be used for, for the overall good of the body. And so, yes, we're different. It would be really weird if everybody was the same. We're all different, yet we're all one body. And so, with the church being Christ's body, then we can combine that with the truth that Christ and the church make up the one new man. Adam, the first man, fell into sin. However, what the old Adam lost, the new Adam, Christ, recovered. So I believe Paul's making a point, um, and he does this in Colossians 3, 9, 11, that the new man is, is uh, uh, corporate. Listen to what he writes in Colossians 3, 9 through 11. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and that put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul later tells us that Christ is the head of his body in Ephesians 1, and 23. And he put all things under his feet and has given him a head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me just make a practical application for us here. And that is this, each member of Christ's body must be in submission to Christ as the head, and it's a complementary relationship with other members of the body. So we all have to submit to Christ as the head, and we all have a complementary relationship to one another as members of the body of Christ. We'll deal with that uh, more specifically in a later message. 
What is the most essential characteristics characteristic of our body? The most essential characteristic of our body is that we're alive. Our bodies are highly organized, but you know what? That organization of our body is useless if we're dead. Unless we're living, organization makes no, no uh, difference. They're, the principles are worthless. Here's what we have to understand. The church is a living, organic body. Body of Christ. If the members of the church are not alive spiritually, then we have an issue. Right? You know what the issue is? The church is dead. And all of the organizations that we try to plug into it, and all these different methods, oh, I saw this great thing on how to make your church grow to 200 people in, in two years or whatever. All that stuff that we try to plug in, it may sound good, and it may even grow, but your church is still dead. It will do no good because you have to be alive. You have to be spiritually alive first and foremost. And so the church is the body, the living body of Christ. Now we notice that the church is also the bride of Christ. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Paul gives us uh, this image of the church being the bride of Christ when he talks about husbands and wives in their respective role in Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. And just in case someone thinks that Paul's limiting his discussion to marriage, then Paul states, this, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The apostle John gives the same imagery in the book of Revelation. The church is the bride, the wife of the lamb. The application that we draw from this is that we can relate to Christ in love as a bride relates to her husband and that we can thrive in the knowledge that Christ loves us and he's chosen us to be his bride. Not only is the church the body of Christ, the church is the bride of Christ, but also the church is the family of God. Once again, book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. Family imagery. It's, it's all through scripture. It's also seen in many places where God is referred to as our father. And we're, we're called uh, brothers and sisters of the Lord. We're, we're God's children through a new birth. And so through adoption, God has adopted us into his family. This not only gives us assurance of God's love for us, but it should also affect our mindsets towards the church. If the church is just something you go to on Sunday, then your whole purpose is to get what you can out of church. That's your whole purpose. If, if all you do is like, well, time to go to church, it's Sunday, or time to log in online, it's Sunday, I gotta go to church, and if that's all it is, then your whole purpose is what can I get out of it? But if the church is the family of God, with Brothers and sisters, do families meet for the same reason that you, that you uh, general audiences meet? Do they get together and, and do the same things? No. Family comes together for relationships because they have a family bond. 
That's the way the church is supposed to work. It's not something you're just supposed to go to. You're supposed to have a family bond here. Most families, get this, most families do not threaten to leave and join another family when they don't get their way. That's not the way, it, well, pastor preached too long this Sunday, I'm, I'm going to go join another family. It's not the way it's supposed to work. Or they're not meeting my needs, i got to go find another family. Because uh, why don't we do that? Because our family bond is what keeps us together so that we work out our differences in love, or at least what is, that's what's supposed to happen in Christian families and in the family of God. We're supposed to say, okay, I don't understand that, or I don't like that, or whatever, and we work it out. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the family of God. Now notice the church is the temple of God. In making reference to the church, Paul again writes in Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In one sense, yes, our body is individually a temple of God, but there's another sense in which the entire church is God's temple. This means that he dwells in our midst. And we are to seek to be holy in all he does. That right now, God is dwelling in the midst. He's, he's here dwelling in our midst. The church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the, the family of God, the temple of God. Now notice that the church is described as the flock of God. Flock of God. Paul delivers this challenge to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. This is what he says to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Peter commands the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. This means that the church belongs to the Lord. The church does not belong to the pastor. The church doesn't belong to the elders. The church doesn't belong to the deacons. The church belongs to the Lord. And the church leaders are shepherds who are responsible to the Lord for the care of his flock. So what I'm saying is, is I'm responsible to God for the care of this flock. And he will hold me accountable. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. It's a family, temple, and flock of God. Now notice that the church is described as the pillar and support of the truth. Pillar in support of the truth. Let me read to you 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now that word buttress is this nautical term. It's used uh, 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 for a structure to stiffen or support a framework. Just notice what Paul is saying here. First, 
He calls the church the household of God. But then he adds that the church actually is the pillar and support of the truth. We live in a day and time where there is widespread departure from the truth of God's word. The church must stand firm in our time. Not only in the proclamation of truth, but also in the practice of truth. Not just heralding out the truth, saying this is the truth, but in the practice of truth. In the body of Christ. One of the main tasks of an elder in the church is that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. That's, that's one of the tasks of the, elder, of the elders in the church. Give instruction and sound doctrine and contradict or rebuke those who contradict it. The church must be this, this pillar and support of truth. It must be must be holding up the truth and saying, this is who we are, and then they practice the truth. And when someone steps out of line of the truth, it's the job of the elders to say, whoa, we're, we got to rebuke you. That's, that's not right. Church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God, the temple of God, the flock of God, the pillar and support of the truth. And lastly, the church is described as the kingdom of God. Now, this is a little bit complicated to explain, mainly because people say, wait a second, the kingdom of God, that's, that's like heaven. And several people have written about uh, the relationship between the church and the kingdom of God. One of those books is The Gospel of the Kingdom by George Ladd. It's, it's helpful if you want to ever buy it or check it out or read it or something. The Gospel of the Kingdom by George Ladd. But Colossians 1, 13 and 14, Paul writes this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then Paul states his aim in 1 Thessalonians 2, 12 when he says this, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The kingdom of God has broken into the world through the church. But it's not complete until Christ returns to rule over the earth. The application for us to take with us is that in the church we live under the rule of Jesus Christ who is our king. We serve his purposes and not our own. We proclaim the rightful lordship of Christ to other people, and we seek to bring them into to the submission of his rule and his reign. We do not get to just go and make up our own ideas of what we think the church should be. We don't get to be, well, I just think the church should be this, and I think the church should be this, and I think the church ought to be like this. We don't get to do that. God's word instructs us of what the church is. God's word reveals to us what the church is. And we submit to that teaching. Or we don't. And if we say, well, I don't really care what God's word says. I'm not going to submit to that teaching. We don't have a church. If we, if we, if we read the scripture, right? And, and in God's truth that we believe is from God, he says, this is what a church is. And we say, well, I don't care. You don't have a church. 
You have a social club. You, you may have a social club with morals, but it's not a church. We have to submit to God's word. This is, this is his king, his rule in this church. We have to submit to what God's word says is a church, and we live it out. In closing, I want to share this with you. The main point I want to drive home in this message is this. Just like that song, the church is you. It's you. If you're watching online, the church is you. It's not something you attend on Sunday. The church is you. And we have to listen. We have to get to the point where we stop attending church. We have to get to the point where we stop saying, well, time to go to church. We have to get to the point where we just stop going or stop attending and we start being the church. Start being the church. Do not make the church a place that you attend for spiritual input. Because, well, I don't have anything better to do this Sunday. I'd give it up for some of you that are watching online and are here on Valentine's Day. I think that's great. Some of you maybe you didn't have anything better to do. I, I, I'm just, it's a joke, some humor. There. But anyway, um, it can just be, well, it's where I go. And that's what the church has become, right, in our culture. As long as I don't have anything better to do. Because we have sold goods to the consumers. I know that I'm not here to, to provide the best show in town for your spiritual enjoyment. I, know, I mean, look at me. There's not much of a show here, folks. Right? I mean, our projector doesn't even work. Well, actually, our computer didn't work. Please understand that if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, you are organically connected to other members. You're one body with them under the head, which is Jesus Christ. You're a member of the family of God, and you're related to other family members. And you have a God-given ministry to fulfill in the local church. Please know that you are only part of this great big family if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, then you're not part of this family. So have you done that? If not, you can do that today and become part of God's family. You can do that by praying something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's Son. You died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior, and thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. It doesn't have to be that exact prayer because it's not a little magic prayer or anything like that. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's your trust in Christ that saves you. But if you called out to God or you want to know more about that, I'd love to follow up with you. You can come forward at the end of this message. You can, you can text me. You can text the word faith to 309-328-3488.
and that, that would just start a follow-up with you. Or you can just text me at that number and say, hey, I want to know more. I'll, I'll try to get back to you. Lastly, let me say this. The idea that a Christian could live their independent spiritual life separate from the life of a local church is actually completely foreign in the New Testament. We hear all the time, I don't have to be a member of church. I don't have to be a member of the church. I don't have to be. I don't have to be. But if you're not submitting as a member, if you're not a member, then you're not submitting to the authority that God has put in place in the church. God wants every single part of the body of Christ to work together which will cause the body to grow from the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Then each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that, so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4.16 In order for our church to grow in love, we need you as a part of it. We need you as a part of it. So whether whether you're in your pew or whether you're online, we need you as a part of it. Unless you're already a part of another church and we don't, we're not trying to steal members away. But we need you as a part of it. That's how the church grows. You will never find in the New Testament these Christians that are just separated from the local church. You're not going to find it. Good luck. Search all you want. You're not going to find it. Which is why we need to be obedient to being part of the local body of Christ. In a minute, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to give you a chance to respond to God's word if that's, if that's what you're feeling led to do. I'd ask you this morning to consider what is the church and how am I part of it? Let's close our prayer. Father, thank you for this word. I believe it's timely. You don't do things by accident, Lord. I believe there's a specific reason why you, you placed it on my heart and led me to, to start this series on the church. And I'm convinced you will consistently, week after week, month after month, you'll bring the people to hear this, these messages that you want to, to hear. Lord, ultimately, I pray that, that we would respond. Because, Lord, that's how you work. You, you draw your people. You, you move in their hearts. You move in their lives. And so, Father, I pray that, that we would respond to your word. And, Lord, there may be those this morning, or, or they, they may hear this message later on. Here tomorrow, next week, next year even, as far as that goes, that, that they need to respond um, to the call of salvation. Because they're not part of the, of the universal church. They've never confessed Christ as their Savior. And so, Father, I pray for those that, that have heard this message and maybe they understand this morning for the first time that they need to be part of the the universal church.
And then, Lord, I pray for, for those this morning that, that, Lord, maybe they're not part of the local church. And maybe you began to speak to their heart. Maybe they need to ask some more questions. Lord, but I pray that, I pray however you've impressed upon their heart that they would, they, they would respond to that. Lord, that you'd speak to us, speak to our hearts, speak to our lives this morning. And however you've done that, that we'd be willing to respond, whether it's through a text message, whether it's through later on after the service is over, whether, whether it's through giving me a call, whatever it is, Lord, that we would just we'd respond. There's no um, dictation in Scripture on how we have to respond. So, Father, I pray that, that as you lead, we would respond to your truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, you'd be willing to respond this morning. Yeah. <laughs>